Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Dr. Amir Eshel, Professor of uh, Comparative Literature at Stanford University. And today we're talking about Poetic Thinking Today. Uh, tremendous book, really excited to talk about it today. Um, uh, Dr. Eshel, uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Uh, and so I was kind of going through your book, um, but before we get into it, why this book? What drove you to write this? Well, that's a great question because, you know, writing this book was not like writing, you know, any other academic book or, you know, academic paper I've written before. It really came out of, um, you know, uncertainty, you know, kind of the big question, you know, what am I doing when I'm waking up in the morning and going to teach a class or trying to write something which I find meaningful. Um, what, is the, what, what is the mode in which I'm thinking, uh, talking to my students, uh, trying to explain to them, you know, why they should take, you know, a course in the humanities, why should they read, you know, both the classics and more contemporary writers, um, these kinds of questions. Um, and, you know, granted, I'm teaching at a university, so, you know, I, I thought before about the mission of the institution, etc. But I found myself, um, you know, before starting to write this book, kind of wondering about my place in this larger landscape. Um, and the book is an attempt to respond to this question, you know, what am I actually doing? <laughs> gotcha. Um, and it's kind of interesting. There is like a significant political bent at the beginning. You talk about uh, tyranny and modern day tyranny. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the book was written with kind of the rise of authoritarian regimes uh, around the, the world, uh, from, you know, India to China to Brazil to Russia, etc., so really with the question of freedom, and mm. while I thought as I was writing, while it's fairly clear to us you know, what makes you know, political tyrannical regimes, I think we tend to ignore the fact that in other areas of our lives in the so-called free world, we submit ourselves to various forms of tyranny, which I find um, you know, not you know, exactly the same oppressive as you would find in places like China or Russia, uh, but still quite oppressive. Mm -hmm. So uh, this kind of non-freedom or the opposite of freedom uh, was very much on my mind while writing. Um, and I found it to be also, um, you know, all around me at the heart of Silicon Valley, in a place allegedly committed to freedom, to boundless freedom, 
I found, you know, new forms of tyranny and new forms of, I would even say, you know, slavery, albeit mm-hmm. very different than what we term or call slavery in the historical context. Do you mind giving uh, just a, a little bit more uh, concrete examples? I mean, you're talking about Silicon Valley. So, and I think you mentioned this at the end of the book, you know, you talked about uh, technology in general, but what are some uh, examples of those modern day tyranny in a place like America? You know, I'll start, uh, you know, with my own children and with students, mm. you know, I see every day uh, when I'm teaching um, our connectedness to, you know, various handheld devices uh, and the way they structure our everyday lives. Mm. Uh, from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed and very often, you know, while we're sleeping as well, you know, that's <laughs> kind of the clearest example. Uh, moving through, you know, social media and the various ways in which social media is not serving, you know, the enhancement of our social lives, uh, but rather forcing us to constantly react to other people uh, and various types of, I would say, even noise. And that is, to me, tyranny. And I would continue and say that, you know, our subjugation to the cycle of production and consumption is another form of tyranny. You know, our obsessive need to, you know, always attain more and be in possession of more. And then, you know, related to it, our, you know, our subjugation to working, you know, ever more and being in this cycle of constant, constant work, constant uh, labor. Uh, that's also for me a tyranny. Um, you know, before we continue again, you know, I'd like to emphasize that this, mm-hmm. this type of slavery is very different Right. Then what we usually call slavery and granted there are, you know, countless people around the world, including, you know, in this country, uh, who are subjected to serious existential daily, you know, trouble, uh, just making ends meet and, you know, working to, you know, to maintain a bare survival. So this is not what I have in mind. Uh, I very much care about those people and their plight. Um, But with the kind of tyranny I spoke about a few minutes ago, I mean, really, the kind of tyranny, you know, uh, you know, affluent societies are suffering from. Uh, Even as you're talking there, I feel like there's a difference between um, and that there is more freedom in in kind of that brave new world approach. But like some of what we're talking about, the different types of slavery, you could talk about a brave new world versus 1984, if that makes sense. The, the idea of the oppressive authoritarian regime that forces you to do things or the self-inflicted creation of um, overwhelming addictive processes, you know, in uh, something like a brave new world. Would that be a good way maybe a, a, or uh, would that be illustrative of what you're talking about? I think I think it is. I think these are really two different things, but there are moments in which you know the two intersect with each other. Mm. Um, so you know the very forms of kind of silent surveillance surveillance we are exposing ourselves to, but we are also prompted to enter in. For example, when we hold a handheld device. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the artists I'm dealing with uh, in the book, Laura Poitras, uh, presented this beautifully in her work. 
Mm. You know, she created artworks kind of based on the fact that we are keeping, you know, in our pockets or somewhere around us, you know, those devices. And although we keep them out of our own free will, nevertheless, they have elements in them um, which keep, you know, an eye on us and, you know, surveil us in various ways. So I think what it is important to keep, you know, a difference between, you know, 1984 and the kind of life you know, we're living in the, in the free world, uh, there are moments where the two are right by each other. Uh, and often we don't notice how we kind of slip into forms of subjugation um, just by the sheer fact of participating in the kind of modern life uh, we live. Absolutely. And I think that gets us really into the meat of poetic thinking today, right? Like, uh, and for that next question, uh, can you just talk a little bit to, for our listeners, um, what you mean by poetic thinking? Because I know that we are going to have some people who are going to think of poetry, which is part of it, but that that kind of poiesis, um, going back to kind of uh, even that Greek idea of, of creation. And you see that as an answer to this tyranny, correct? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Granted, you know, for most of our life, as we are, you know, awake and pursuing our various, you know, objectives in life, if it's, you know, work or family or, you know, filling all kinds of obligations, you know, we, we have to uh, maintain some kind of logic in whatever we do. We have to make sense. Mm. And when we communicate with other people and we want to, you know, fix all kinds of things, you know, be it I know what plumbing issues or when we talk to colleagues at work or even when we teach our students, you know, something about, you know, Shakespeare or, you know, when the French Revolution took place, you know, we have to maintain a certain elements of what we call logic. Yeah, we have to make sense. We have to keep a protocol in which for which you know we are accountable in terms of you know what is correct and what is incorrect and what is related to historical events and whatnot etc so yeah. i would i would think about this entire realm of our lives as the realm of logic of rigor and the kind of reasoning which we associate typically with a scientific method where, you know, truth and the opposite of truth uh, are really essential uh, to how we think and how we communicate with other people. So this is, this is the one realm of our lives in which uh, something along the lines of scientific thinking or logical thinking, rigorous thinking, you know, that's the label for this realm. Uh, but I think that at the same time, we have also another mode of thinking. Another mode of engaging uh, with the world in its various iterations uh, in which we're not driven by logic, we're not driven by making sense, uh, but we still nevertheless think. Hmm. Uh, we reflect, we meditate, we consider, um, forgive me for using the word, but I will for a moment, we deconstruct, we take kind of solid ideas and we try to think about them differently, consider them differently. In this realm, I would define as the poetic realm, in which what drives us is creativity, is the broadening of our existing vocabularies to include 
new ways of approaching the world, being in the world, interacting uh, with the world, again, in its various situations, be it other human beings, or even nature. Mm. You know, poetic thinking for me is our capacity, you know, to go for a walk. And as we observe a tree or a flower or an animal, um, to think about what it is which surrounds us in ways which are not committed to the scientific protocol, to, uh, to the kind of rigorous logical thinking we employ uh, we're in, uh, when we are uh, you know, engaged in, in scientific uh, pursuits. And I, I think I understand why you emphasize the nature, being able to approach nature poetically, because most of the time we give nature over to science, right? And so it's really valuable. Uh, and I want just making sure I'm tracking with you here. It, you, you find it very valuable to be able to approach everything and uh, especially nature because it is normally something that is subsumed under science. Would that be, would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously, you know, the sciences give us, you know, you know, incredible amounts of knowledge about our natural surrounding. And this knowledge is essential for our survival. Mm. Um, at the same time, I think uh, nature um, in various ways uh, invites us to experience ourselves uh, and what surrounds us in ways uh, the sciences can never capture. Um, and this engenders or brings us to paint a picture or write a poem or a novel to create a sculpture um, around which we then coalesce with other people uh, and develop you know, various forms of human life uh, from religion uh, to education uh, to conversation, uh, even love. Mm. Um, and I think it's crucial for us to develop a sensitivity uh, to that realm uh, and to the limitations of what we take to be, you know, the scientific uh, method and the way it gives us access to what surrounds us. Now, obviously, when you're talking about tyranny, there seems to be a political dimension. That's generally where tyranny is found. Um, and you see this creative dimension as kind of an answer to that. Uh, would you say that there's also a moral dimension? And what does that look like? How does that play into this dynamic? Well, I think morality is really uh, at the heart of it. Um, because for me, you know, the question of ethics um, is not just the question of uh, right versus wrong, good versus evil. Uh, morality is also the realm in which we ask the question, you know, what consists of a good life? What is the good life? Yeah. Um, and the good life or the question, how do I want to live my life? How should we as a community, you know, live our lives? Um, I think is, is at the heart of what I call poetic thinking. Um, I think that maintaining and cultivating and expanding the realm of our lives in which we're not committed to logical thinking, to systematic thinking, to rigorous thinking, um, has everything to do with pursuing the good life and living mm. the good life. I think if we were to fully commit ourselves to uh, logical thinking, rigorous thinking, scientific thinking, you know, practical thinking in various ways, 
we are bound to live the opposite of the good life. We need a kind of a balance between the two. It's not the one or the other. We need to find and strike a balance between the two. Uh, and I think we live in a time in which often we lose sight of this balance. You know, we tend to uh, commit larger portions of our lives to the one type of thinking, to the one type of engaging with what surrounds us. And I think I've talked about this on here before, but uh, I mean, you mentioned one kind of tyranny being us um, being caught up in this cycle of production and consumption. And so, for instance, uh, I don't, one day I was just uh, sitting in a conversation, I'm talking, and I just realized someone talked about something being efficient. It might have been me. <laughs> And I realized that in our culture, if you say something's efficient, it's automatically good. And when you really think about that, it's like, there's nothing, efficient is just a description of something. It doesn't give you any, there's nothing moral about efficiency, right? On the, and so that, I, you know, that comes to mind. Uh, and what led me to even ask the question is that you're talking about nature teaching us how we truly love, right? And so when we talk about what the good life is, I mean, love does not feel efficient, at least last time, like at least in my experience of it, right? Um, did you have a specific example in mind when you were talking about nature showing us about love? Um, you know, I can start with, for me, kind of the most obvious point, yeah. which is, you know, my dog, you know, my dog for <laughs> me is a part of the natural world. And yeah. my relationship to my dog, you know, uh, is a relationship of love. Mm. Uh, you know, my, my dog doesn't need to, um, you know, comply with anything. My dog doesn't need to, I know what, fix anything in the world. You know, my, that my love to my dog is just because I love my dog. Uh, I can talk about the, the garden I'm looking at, you know, as we conduct this interview, you know, mm. um, you know, I, I, I look at the plants in various parts or the tree right, you know, in front of me uh, for the sheer pleasure uh, of its beauty of the mm. green, you know, coming at me. Um, I can, of course, you know, consider this tree or consider the plant or consider my dog, you know, mm -hmm. using various protocols of, I don't know what, the scientific method. Uh, but it will have nothing to do with the kind of love I sense when I consider uh, these things right outside. Yeah, I have to admit, my parents have uh, two Shih Tzus, and I'm not a fan of small dogs. And there's part of me that's always kind of annoyed with them. But at the end of the day, when they come up to you and like they lick your hand and they like look at you or like like come up into your lap, it is like you can't. <laughs> I'm like, OK. Like, it's not so bad, you know, it, it, yeah. you can't resist that. And that's definitely not, there's, doesn't, you know, I'm sure you could go into the hormones available, but it doesn't ex, uh, describe the, the conscious experience of that sensation of those um, interactions. Fully agree. Fully agree. And I think if we, if we, pay attention and we then cultivate, you know, our ability to make these experiences and to consider the way we reflect on them, meditate on them, integrate them into mm. our lives. Um, I think we stand a chance to kind of broaden the scope of freedom uh, mm. we enjoy. 
Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to ask, uh, as we kind of move through the book, we, we talked about poetic thinking and how it's creativity at large, but why poetry first? Why is that the first part of the essay? Because typically we use language in order to fix problems. I know that mm. sounds very simplistic, uh, but I think, you know, language uh, emerged historically and developed uh, historically as much as we can tell, uh, because it's an incredibly powerful tool to ensure our survival and to allow mm. us to communicate with others and to fix, you know, various problems we encounter in our lives. Uh, and that's, of course, wonderful. Um, and it serves, you know, in this capacity, in various things, you know, we do. You know, if we talk with colleagues, if we write a white paper to solve some issue, if we answer an email in which there's a problem, et cetera, et cetera, if we write a contract, you know, to ensure, you know, the legality of something. Uh, if we protest, I know what, the war in Ukraine, all kinds of things, you know, language can do. And that's, and that's incredible. Uh, but I think language, as much as it is, um, you know, very important for these kinds of things, uh, language proves itself to be incredibly beneficial, um, life-affirming, um, you know, life-enhancing, uh, if it's not committed to what I called before fixing problems. If mm. it's just there to produce a certain sound, um, think about, you know, rhyme, Think about the ways in which, you know, poetry progresses, producing, um, you know, through alliteration and other forms, uh, just an incredible, uh, you know, artistic or aesthetic sensation. Uh, and poetry, I think, stands for this ability of language to give us this kind of pleasure. Um, we use words, and the words, if you take them, you know, one, one after the other by themselves, they all mean something. But very often, a, a line of poetry or a stanza don't really make sense in the way an email would make sense, or a speech would make sense, or when we say something to a colleague makes sense. Uh, it makes sense in a poetry. In poetry, uh, words make sense poetically. You know, mm. by being that creative way to address the world, to inhabit the world, um, to resonate with the world. Uh, so poetry is maybe the closest we get to language and its various pragmatic, practical uh, uses, but it also shows us what the poetic in our language can be, namely that creative free domain uh, which I think we all have access to, uh, we all possess. Absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, a little bit more about that connection between poetic language and the good life? I think you touched on it a little bit there, but um, I feel like there's um, opening our eyes to the good life, but it almost sounds like you're talking about poetry being the good life. And that's really fascinating to me. I think poetry allows us to make connections uh, using language uh, between elements we never connected before. Uh, if mm. you think about metaphor, 
metaphor brings together parts of our lives uh, in ways you know we never you know brought before i mean take a you know one of the most you know stale metaphors out there you know the the, the evening of life you say um, or the dawn of the day um you know you bring you know a, the cycle of the day together with the cycle of life and you make a connection using language which you never made before. You say, ah, a human life has a beginning and an end, like the day has a beginning and an end. And I think these kinds of connections give us the possibility to view our lives differently, to go through our lives differently, to, to share with other people our emotions uh, in ways uh, we were not able to uh, to do uh, before, uh, and that's something quite unique, I think, to to poetry uh, as one form, but also to to literature, um, you know, as such. I recently read uh, Rachel Cusk's trilogy, um, so-called outline trilogy. Uh, Rachel Cusk, a contemporary British uh, novelist, uh, and the first part of this. A trilogy is called uh, Outline. Um, and Outline is already, you know, a, a metaphor. So the, the protagonist or the main character in this book um, presents human life, you know, using this notion of an outline. How do we meet, how do we move from having an outline of understanding human life uh, to actually inhabit life as an outline? Think of life as something we constantly chart, constantly draft, and change the draft as we go along. This is a beautiful metaphor for what consists of human life, what makes a human life. Hmm. And by giving her book the title Outline, Rachel Kask opens us the possibility to view our lives as kind of an ongoing outline we are trying to to get right, yeah, hmm. yeah, and I could I go, did, go you know, on yeah. and on, you know, and all, and all No, that's that's uh, that's great. Uh, so, and that's uh, we'll definitely put Rachel Kask down below, um, uh, and her trilogy down below, uh, along with your book. That's I'm just trying to process that um, and thinking about. Uh, what you, of course, there's the what they call the problem of paraphrase, and I don't want to kill her metaphor, but also just recognizing just a few of the lessons of, of the idea that we are constantly revising ourselves, right? And that's um, uh, what a powerful notion and what a, a freeing notion, right? That the good life is something that's in process, right? It's, uh, we, <laughs> and I think some people do get stuck with that idea that like, if they can reach a form of stasis, that would be the good life. And it's, it's not. And that, that's actually, you know, from uh, a biological standpoint, what you're talking about is death. Beautifully said, PJ. I think, look, there's so much freedom in releasing ourselves from the notion that life is a story. You know, that mm. we have kind of a clear arc leading us from point A to the very last point. That everything needs to make sense and be stable mm. and, you know, and follow a rigid protocol of what constitutes the good life, you know, with capital, you know, 
T and capital G and capital L. And, and, and here she comes and, and she names the novel Outline. And all of a sudden you realize just by, you know, reflecting on the title, no, it's, it's not this big story about who we are and how we got to be who we are and I don't know what the great achievements, you know, we made. Think about obituaries and how obituaries mm -hmm. often, you know, turn life into this very orderly story. Uh, you know, just by, by choosing this type, she says, no, 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 wait a second. It's, it's actually just an outline, just, just a draft, just something very ephemeral. Mm -hmm. Think about it, consider it. Uh, free yourself from the notion of crafting your life as this kind of rigid, orderly, you know, ultimately normative, you know, big story. I needed to hear that. I really appreciate that. Um, we have a six-week-old baby right now, and my life feels uh, it's just constantly about trying to create order out of chaos and just stepping back a moment and enjoying the chaos <laughs> of three kids of a, a six week old and um even enjoying being tired which is a weird thing but waking up in the morning and not being like oh i need to get all these things done but just you know get done what i need to get done but also just enjoying the process and the stages um because uh, you know i i know these concepts i've heard these concepts but one there's I need to be reminded, but two, what a beautiful way to phrase it and to think about um, what really matters. And uh, it's so easy to miss what's good about our lives right now because we're looking for that, that uh, the arc to finish, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's beautifully said. And, you know, it brings us straight back to the notion of poetic thinking. You know, you can, you can read a I Know What a philosophy book or a self-help book, you know, kind of trying to promote the notion, you know, live your life as an outline. You know, this is one way to go. And then you can just read the title of a novel hmm. and follow the novel, you know, under this title, Outline. Um, you know, you'll be doing a lot of thinking, I'm sure, but it's a very different thinking compared with the kind of thinking you'll do if you'll read this, you know, self-help book. Um, where someone just takes you through the various, I don't know what, stages and, you know, kind of tells you, uh, orders you how you should live your life. So, and we talked a little bit about poetry there. What does painting do that poetry doesn't? What makes painting special in this, in kind of this framework you're creating? I think for me, um, painting um, like photography by the way has the capacity mm. to you know confront us with an image uh, in a way which is transformative to how we see ourselves how to see other human how we see other human beings how we see nature um, everything basically pertaining to to our lives there's a there's a quality a, of the visual image, a transformative quality of the visual image, a, which I think can function and in fact does function in a similar way to what we just described when we talked about a, Rachel Kask's a, a outline. Um, you know, the, the paintings I'm describing in the book, I think, have this capacity. 
So in the book, you know, there's a, there's a large section dedicated to the German painter, Gerhard Richter, and, and some of his paintings. And mm. for me, you know, just seeing his paintings, those paintings I'm describing in the book, was mm. a, a transformative event in my life. Um, and this is something which I think um, goes back, you know, to really to, to, to biology and physiognomy, you know, our ability to see a, an image um, and the kind of thinking engendered by this moment of seeing, uh, I think has a transformative quality uh, in terms of how, uh, how we live uh, our lives. I'm trying to think of uh, other examples, you know, as I speak, you know, the most obvious one being the kind of images we sometimes encounter when we open a newspaper um, mm. and we see, you know, when it comes to photojournalism, you know, we see, um, you know, victims uh, of war, for example. If we see, you know, destructed houses in Kiev, in the Ukraine uh, these days, if we see the kind of devastation, you know, inflicted on, you know, cities in Syria during the Syrian civil war, I think just the visual power of such images has the capacity to, A, engender a whole variety of thoughts going through our heads, but also often to bring us to reflect on our ability to do something, to, to act in a way um, which may address um, uh, what we encounter in this in this visual uh, image. Uh, again, you can read you know an article about the war in the Ukraine, and the article can move you to tears. Um, but I think that similarly, on its own terms, um, one photographic image uh, coming to us from the war in Ukraine uh, can bring us to do a lot of thinking and potentially even to change the way we act. Absolutely. Uh, even as you talked earlier about nature uh, speaking to us in this creative way, uh, or us interacting with it creatively, I think about what are the what are the enduring forms of painting. You know, you, landscape would be one, right? That when someone paints a truly magnificent landscape, it gives us that sense of the sublime. But even as you're talking about the Ukraine, I think of um, uh, you mentioned uh, photography, and it. it comes in painting and it comes in uh, photography, how powerful the portrait is uh, of seeing um, someone else's face in those situations. Um, uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head for the Ukraine, but I know uh, even as a child going through history class, I mean, probably one of the most famous photos of all time is the Dust Bowl photo of the mother with the two kids. And, you know, you can take pictures of great big windstorms and stuff like that, but the look that that the photographer managed to catch is just uh, it create it creates that moment that opening to see. That's that's great. That's great. And and as you're speaking, you know, I was thinking about you know, forgive me for taking yet again oh, no, a very very stale example. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe the most they're classics stale of for a reason. <laughs> you know, entire books were written about mm. the smile of the Mona Lisa. Mm. So why is she smiling? What, you, what is she smiling about? You know, is she, is she smiling or smirking at us, looking at her? You know, is, is she making fun of 
all of us tourists kind of pushing to take our little picture of the famous Mona Lisa? You know, does she know in advance that we'll be doing that silly thing of, you know, standing in line and kind of you know, gathering around this one image to see just one thing, namely, you know, the beauty of her smile, um, the timelessness mm. of that smile. Um, but that's just, you know, yeah. a, a stale example. Um, I mean, but that's a classic. I think everyone's familiar with that. Everyone has seen that picture and been like, I know everyone asks this, but why is she doing that? Like, it's <laughs> if someone was sitting next to me and was making that smile, I like I'd give it 15 minutes tops before I was like, what? What is happening? Why are you doing that? And so, I mean, that's the genius of Da Vinci, right? Um, there, you go. there you go. And it's and it's open. It's not. I mean, there's no way one can answer this question. You know, obviously, you know, we can't back. We, we can't go back in time and ask Leonardo, tell us, you know, what is she smiling at? Uh, but we we all in various ways, you know, ask ourselves, you know, what's going on? Yes. And so it op- that creative space, it opens, it- would you say it's opening inside us? Or do you think that, uh, do, you, do you find the value of creative thinking and of artwork in what it creates in the viewer? Or do you think, uh, how do you view that kind of relationship between the uh, person interpreting and the thing being interpreted? If I could put it that crassly, I realize there's some back and forth. Sure, sure, sure. So I think, you know, it starts, of course, you know, with the creator, with the person, you know, creating, you know, in Leonardo's case, you know, this image. So there's there's some thinking going on there, you know, starting from the basic fact that you make some choices as an artist, mm. you know, she will have that smile and you have to make sure that you render this smile you know, visible, noticeable. Hmm. Uh, and then, of course, there's the thinking which occurs uh, at the moment in which we as individuals, you know, encounter the artwork uh, and ask ourselves individually, uh, you know, what's going on? I mean, what is it that we're seeing? Who is she? Why is she smiling? And so on. Um, but then, of course, there's this moment in which we look around us and we see that other people are asking similar questions or just observing the image, and, and we start talking with them. Hmm. And, and this conversation becomes that space of reflection, you know, from the individual to the community. And for me, that space of reflection is, is really important um, hmm. because... You know, it's one thing if reflection um, occurs around, you know, Leonardo's Mona Lisa. Um, it's, a, it's a whole different thing when reflection um, and communal conversation emerges uh, around, going back to the example we gave before, photojournalism, uh, in which an image comes at us and we tell each other, did you see that incredible image of, you know, you know, Ukrainian refugees arriving in Europe seeking, you know, refuge? Or did you see the picture of that victim after this horrendous bombing? Mm. Um, what can we do about it? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this is, this is this, this space of reflection, uh, I mean, uh, when I invoke this notion in the book. Hmm. Uh- you were talking a little bit with the Mona Lisa uh, about tourists congregating around it. And 
it reminds me of how you talk about with sculpture, how it's tied to the landscape, to the cityscape. Can you talk a little bit about how context and particularly these different kinds of, if I can say, scapes, these landscapes, these cityscapes, um, uh, inform and are informed by the by sculpture? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Thank you for that, PJ. So, uh, you know, a lot of the examples I bring in the book uh, are examples, uh, you know, from sculptures placed in Germany. Mm. Uh, in Germany, given its you know fraught history, has lots of uh, you know public spaces which offer themselves uh, for artistic you know production, artistic uh, reaction. So if you take, you know, uh, some of the sculptures I discuss, you know, in Berlin, uh, you see how um, places in which, you know, uh, momentous historical events took place in Berlin, such as close to the Reichstag, you know, the famous German parliament, um, places which stands for some of the darkest moments in human history, mm. by placing a sculpture there, become spaces of, you know, communal conversation and communal reflection. So if you, if you write outside the Reichstag um, place, a memorial for the Sinti and Roma murdered um, during a, a, the Second World War, a, you create such a space of reflection, a, not just commemoration, but reflection. Mm. Um, and uh, if you take, you know, the famous Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, that would be another example in which a city known for its dark history um, decides uh, through a civic process to create those spaces in which people can come together and reflect both on the past and history, but also consider together how they want to live their lives as a political community uh, in the future. Uh, in the United States, you know, famously, there's, of course, the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., which I think offers a similar uh, space. Uh, you know, people go there in order to, you know, remember and commemorate the fallen and the dead hmm. and the horrors of war. Uh, but I think you can also go to the memorial and observe a, this wonderful a artwork, wonderful and also you know, deeply moving and, mm. and, and disturbing artwork as a way to consider uh, how are we living our lives as a community? What kind of values do we have as a community? Um, what could we possibly do to prevent you know, similar historical uh, events from taking place in the future? So these kinds of sites, I think, uh, invite both individual and communal reflection, deliberation, um, even meditation uh, when we encounter them. Uh, and they're very powerful. Um, I think, yeah. we, honestly, honestly, you know, I think we need more of them, uh, especially, you know, in American cities. We need more places, you know, in prominent places in a city where people can come together uh, and consider uh, a moment uh, in this country's uh, history. Um, you met, you've mentioned remembrance, you've mentioned uh, history a little bit, um, and it's immediate, immediately apparent to me when I think about remembrance and history, how we can use that to fix problems. 
What role does remembrance play in the creation? Uh, obviously, it, you, you have tied it to reflection. What role does remembrance play in the creative mode of thinking? You know, that's a, that's a great question and, and, and also a tough one mm. because often, you know, the answer is not that clear. Mm. You know, I'm I'm writing this book, so trying to trying to write this these days. You know, a, a new book, and you know, one of the one of the places I'm reflecting on, thinking a lot about as I'm writing this book is this this place in which George Floyd, you know, a, was was murdered a, openly on the street, and trying to reflect about the various ways in which the community is trying to, you know both commemorate the event, but also maintain a certain space in the city for people to come together and reflect on what happened. Um, so I think what, what makes these kinds of locations uh, you know, so potent and so important uh, is to try as much as possible not to prescribe you know, the meaning of this place, not to you know, determine in advance the way we make sense of them. Uh, but rather to leave as much as possible uh, the space and modes of commemoration uh, open for various people to experience them, you know, on their own uh, or using their own vocabulary. Um, I think for me, poetic thinking has a lot to do with, you know, maintaining, you know, freedom on the side of the viewer, on the side of the beholder, um, to come up with one's own, you know, reaction uh, to whatever one sees or whatever emotions one has uh, when encountering a certain site or a sculpture or a memorial in a certain site. So it's almost a... Yeah, please go ahead. I was going to say, so almost a form of confrontation uh, and to maybe create that reflective space. Did that, am I tracking with you there? Is that kind of make sense of uh, where yes. we're going? Yes, because I think art at its best uh, is a, a bodily reaction or engenders mm. at, its, at its best a bodily reaction. You know, the kind of bodily reaction we have when we hear a piece of music uh, and we are deeply, deeply moved, even in ways which we cannot verbalize. Or when we see a visual image, uh, and again, you know, there's a quality to the image which really, you know, kind of pierces our eyes, metaphorically speaking, uh, without us immediately knowing uh, why this piercing uh, took place. Um, I think this, this bodily reaction um, is the, perhaps the first step uh, in mm. a longer process in which, as time goes by, we're able to verbalize what we experience and then make sense of it for ourselves and then perhaps later even share it with others. Um, you know, the, the French, uh, you know, wonderful you know, philosopher who recently died, Bruno Latour, um, uses this notion uh, when he talks about aesthetics. He says that, uh, aesthetics is that which renders us sensitive to, mm. and he leaves what comes after to open, uh, because it's ah. always, you know, different things. 
You know, a painting is what renders us sensitive to love, to nature, to pain, etc. A sculpture is that which renders us sensitive to where we are in a city or where we are in a certain space. A poem is that which renders us sensitive to words we are using every day but never quite thought of, etc., etc. So I think confrontation, another word I would use is reaction. Mm. So as we encounter whatever we encounter, you know, again, a piece of music, a, a novel, a poem, etc., how do we react to it um, physically, mm. emotionally, intellectually? Um, how can we describe this reaction? How can we verbalize it? Uh, what words do we use in order to share this reaction with others? And so on. All in search of uh, or in production of what the good life is supposed to be, bringing it back around to what you're talking about earlier. Yes. Yes, yes. I think ultimately, you know, we are, you know, meaning-seeking creatures. You know, we are purpose-searching animals. And with the, you know, hoped outcome to, you know, to live a good life, you know, a meaningful life, a life which makes sense as we're living, we're living it. Yeah, a life which cannot be reduced to what we possess, you know, mm. what we shop for, what we consume, um, a life which goes, you know, beyond, I don't know what, the like or dislike, you know, the thumb up, thumb down. Uh, something a little more nuanced than that. And I think that kind of brings us to, you know, your, your final coda here at the end. Uh, you start with the quotation, the world must be romanticized by Novalis. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, I want to be considerate of your time. Yeah. Tell us a little bit what it means to romanticize the world again. It means first and foremost to develop a, a healthy, rich relationship uh, to our emotions to befriend our emotions, mm. uh, to befriend that part uh, of our lives, of our psyche, of our minds, of our spirit, uh, which can never be uh, reduced to uh, formulas, to forms, to equations, to numbers, to uh, graphs, to bubbles. <laughs> uh, to all these wonderful things, which are important, granted, you know, I don't want to suggest that these things are not important. You know, when it comes to, you know, you know, finding a vaccine, you know, for COVID-19, you know, we don't need, I know what, lofty poems and lofty emotions and all kinds of things that, you know, take us away from pursuing the vaccine. You know, we need someone to you know, have the numbers right and conduct the, you know, experiments and please give us the vaccine. But at the same time, I think we need to make sure that our lives are not reduced to this. And I think the romantics with their plea to romanticize the world um, prompt us, prod us 
to cultivate uh, that realm, uh, which is emotional, uh, which is free of any kind of rigor and logic, which is instinctual, which is corporal, uh, which is creative ultimately, which doesn't make sense, uh, because it is there, they believe, where we experience uh, both freedom mm. uh, and the very essence of the good life. You know, in ways in which, you know, graphs and numbers and bubbles and models and equations can never do. Uh, even to take your example, we obviously needed this scientific, rigorous, logical mode to create the vaccine. But on the on the tail end, you know, in the midst of lockdown, at the after, you know, as things have settled down a little bit with COVID, like we need to be able to create and recreate a beautiful world, right? We can't allow uh, tough times to subdue us into a world of, of, of fear and boxes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, it's not just about extending human life. It's about mm. living a meaningful life. Mm. And for, for life to be meaningful, it needs to be rich with all aspects of human life including those aspects which I would call, you know, the emotional, the poetic, etc., um, for which, you know, we need to cultivate a, a language, a vocabulary, both verbal and visual. Um, and that vocabulary, again, you know, can never be restricted to the realm of the scientific method or the technological you know, world, which we also inhabit, and has its important. But as this book, I think, tries to suggest, it seems to me we veered too much in one direction, and we need to um, try our best to find a different, to strike a different balance. I can't think of a better way to end today. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rochelle, for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and uh, looking forward to, you know, conversations with you and with other readers in the future. <laughs>